HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. I'm Michael Harlan Turkel, and this is Modernist Breadcrumbs. Bread is nothing new. If anything, it's anachronistic. It can be appreciated without reference to time or place. So maybe that's why there are baguettes in bodegas. I've even seen bagels in patisseries. We're only beholden to where bread has been, not where it belongs. So when we look back on how modern baking came to be, it's the same old story of craft and forming art, and how the artisanal approach was replicated through the aid of mechanization. What we're really looking at here is a reflection of the integrated world, and how we almost lost touch with ourselves by losing touch with bread. My father coined a term that he called retro-innovation, using the best of past techniques and the best of present techniques to create tomorrow's loaves of bread. But really, the concept is, I think, applicable at large um, as almost um, a life philosophy in some ways. My, my um, My father's term was coined to reflect art production choices, where we we chose both some really ancient techniques, hand kneading the loaf, um, a wood-fired oven, but yet used a mechanical kneading mixer because that made for a more homogeneous dough. But it also meant that in 1997, we had an operating website to ship the bread halfway around the world because as my family's business grew, we went beyond the borders of the neighborhood of Paris and we started shipping um, since the 70s to um, Asia, the Americas, Europe, of course. Uh, and today to, we have customers, private clients, restaurants, retailers of our breads in most continents. That was Apollonia Poilon. Anyone that's been to Paris has probably passed by 8 Rue de Cherche-Midi on the left bank 6 arrondissement. With stacks of wicker baskets in the window, inside there are miche boules, a loaf made up of four ingredients, sourdough, stone ground wheat flour, water, and sea salt. It's become the signature bread at Poilon. Since her grandfather started the bakery in 1932, it wasn't until her father, Lionel, who carried the tradition of natural fermentation and wood-fire ovens in the 1970s, that their bread spread with worldwide prestige. Apollonia had to take over the family business when her parents passed in 2002. She was 18 years old, but mature enough to become CEO of a company that for eight decades has made the most celebrated bread in Paris. 
So my grandfather started um, the business as a neighborhood bakery, and we started retailing to neighborhood businesses, um, a cafe, cheesemongers, uh, restaurants, and as that retailer ne- retailer's network grew, we needed to um, expand production capacities because our, our local customers were, was, of course, our, our first um, and main focus. Um, we had two stores in Paris, in the 6th and in the 15th at that point. And my father and mother, in the early 1980s, designed our manufactory. We call it Manufacture, and my parents picked the words in the early 80s to reflect the choice of producing bread by hand. There's 24 ovens at the manufactory where every baker works from start to finish on his loaf of bread. And so essentially it's like 24 neighborhood bakeries, one next to the other. Um, And because it was very important to them my father is a baker and my mother is an architect to feed and nurture that the very specifics of what of the way we went about baking breads they used the word manufacture to reflect the fact that our bread is still handmade by one baker per batch yes the miche may be poilan's symbol of their bread nobility but it's hardly aristocratic it's a neighborhood bakery and truthfully it's the opposite of what more expensive breads once were. William Rubel, a culinary historian, takes an American perspective on French breads of the era. And that is an historical flip. So in the 18th century and the 17th century in English, French bread meant a lightly enriched white bread. A standard American sandwich bread which you can get from any 19th century or 20th century cookbook, if you take the sugar out, because we started adding sugar in the late 19th century. Although I will say that the tablespoon of sugar, it ferments out, so like it goes dry, and I've actually started adding it. And I'm not saying that sheepishly. I've started adding it. It makes a lighter loaf and a softer crumb uh, to add a little bit of sugar. But... The basic American sandwich bread, which is white flour, a little bit of fat, can be in the form of an eggs, can be in the form of butter or oil, um, and yeast. These were breads that, by the late 18th century, the French were calling pandeluques. Jim Chevalier noticed an elitist acceptance of white breads as early as the Middle Ages. The upper crust wasn't really for the upper class. In fact, it was inverse. The softer the bread, the higher the social class. There has been a kind of class idea since the Middle Ages that white bread is just better. And the official ranks of bread, because uh, the government in France of the different cities used to define three types of bread. And it went from the darkest bread with the the most bran in it to the most sifted, the bread made from the most sifted flour. And the most sifted flour produced the bread that was considered best and most expensive. So it's an old story that, you know, whiter bread was just considered high class, upper class. You get to the 19th century and it just becomes much more possible for people to have white bread no matter what their class. And there are actually long articles on how when people were having trouble getting bread or affording it, the government would try to give them dark bread. And beggars can be choosers. The French, the Parisian populace did not want dark bread. They wanted light bread. But in the countryside of France, there were bakers trying to protect their own regional breads. Camille Sassy is a well-known boulanger in baker's circles. He remembers the country breads, or pain de campagne, on which he was raised. First, Bordeaux is like a small city compared to Paris. Uh, people don't have the same lifestyle. So, uh, and it's like more into, when we go to Paris, you're going to find a different way to make bread and different flavors in the bread. People play with it. People have the, this uh, luxury to make this happen because of the demand. When we go to Bordeaux, when it's a countryside and people... Uh, they're more like, uh, okay, we want to eat bread. 
we're not playing. Don't put apricot on my bread. Just give me a baguette. So you know what I mean? It's more when you're going to go to Bordeaux, you're going to have this big mish with different sourdough, different uh, flowers, uh, playing with the flavors of the flowers, like high buckwheat, uh, all wheat, this kind of uh, a spelt, uh, but not having like uh, cheese. It happened. Huh? People do it, but it's more like we're more rustic, in the, especially on the west side. When we go to Paris or Marseille, which is a big city, you find more fantasy, bread fantasy. That when, when, I, when I was a chef at uh, Eric Kaiser uh, work, and worked with him in Paris, uh, he was like this. The domain was here. So we have this uh, crazy bread with uh, cheese and olives and, uh, and uh, olive oil and everything. The term country bread wasn't in use colloquially and didn't travel far and wide until boulangeries tried to diversify past the baguette. Here's Nathan Mirvold, founder of The Cooking Lab and co-author of Modernist Bread. The Polan family has had uh, bakeries for a really long time, and um, Apollonia uh, Polan has this funny story that her grandfather was baking in his little village in the 1970s when a fancy car stopped out front and a very elegantly dressed woman, uh, clearly from Paris, came into the bakery and asked, do you have country-style bread? And he'd never heard the term before, and he said, well, we have bread, we're in the country, this must be country-style bread. But in fact, if you look at country-style breads as typically represented in French bakeries, they're actually not very much like the Polan ones. The Polan folks still make the same bread, uh, but the others are sort of a a basic um, French bread with 15 to 30 percent other flours in them, and they're probably not very much like any actual country-style bread. From fantasy to fancy, we all know and love the beauty of a baguette. It's just a breadstick. It's certainly not a ball like Poilin's Miche, but its shape shaped the history of present-day bread around the world. In English, they call those fancy breads. And the term pain de fantasy referred to the category to a whole bunch of breads that are outside the regulated norms because the government regulated the prices for certain types of bread. But there was also a specific kind of bread that, again, looks exactly like a baguette. You look at it, look at it and you just can't say why it's not a baguette. Um, and they called that a pain de fantasy too. So why some breads were called a jocko and some a pain de fantasy I, I can't say, and I've looked at it quite a bit. The long and short of it is that as a bread, as an existing actual bread, the baguette existed pretty much from the middle of the 19th century on, but it was not called a baguette. Meanwhile, when the French referred to a breadstick, an Italian glissini, which uh, was essentially what we call a breadstick, they called it a baguette, meaning just a stick. It was a stick of bread. And so the term baguette was around, but it was referred to a grissini. The first official use I found of the word baguette was in 1920. That's that's a key date because it's just after the war and after all the deprivations of the war and after there had been various um, limits on what kind of breads people could make. Balls and sticks. We'll have more of that obtuseness in episode six, Shapes and Scoring. But in the meantime, let's lay out the language assigned to modern-day bread. Here's Francisco Magoya, head chef for Modernist Cuisine and co-author of Modernist Bread. If we're not talking about challah and, and brioche, but we're talking about these other types of breads, those are more traditional shapes. Boule, batard, baguette, rolls, which are really just like a small boule. Um, these, these are going to be your most common shapes. But... There are the shapes that I call French regional breads or French regional shapes. And this all came to be because there is an um, association in France that's called Compagnon du Devoir, which is uh, uh, an association of bakers that own bakeries where they take apprentices. Um, and so it's basically a place where you learn, uh, you have a, a, a mentor uh, that teaches you the craft of baking, and it, it's it's almost like going to school in a bakery. 
and you have your final exam. I mean, the final exam is a number of things, but the most important thing is you have to come up with a shape. And this is where, I, I, like, when people say that there shouldn't be, that there hasn't been innovation in bread, and that there's, you know, there hasn't been like a lot of new things happening in bread. These things are innovation. When you look at these shapes, they were innovative, uh, and it was it was a, a definite thinking outside the box when when people came up with these shapes, and it was it was basically a different way to show the bread. It's it's it is an artistic, personal interpretation of how to shape a bread. And so um, the, the names that are given to these breads are names that are based on what they're supposed to look like. If we judge a bread by its name alone, a baguette is probably the one most spoken. Une baguette, s'il vous plaît. Excuse-moi, ceci n'est pas une baguette. It's just bread. It's not even French. August Zang, an Austrian, brought his boulangerie venezoise to Paris and perfected the baguette through a system of steam baking which was his own invention. I hate to say it, but the croissant came the way of Zhang too. Incroyable. It turns out the baguette, that is probably from 1918, 1917, right after World War I. It's not a traditional bread. In fact, if we then look more generally at the breads that we have uh, represented today, none of them are all that old. And... One of the ways we looked into this was to say, well, what did bread look like in the past? Of course, when you go before photography, it's hard to get pictures. So I spent a whole day going through the Louvre looking for pictures – or for paintings, excuse me – that had bread in them. It turns out the Last Supper is a great way to look for that. Um, uh, subsequent to that, I went through museums all over Europe. We went through catalogs. Uh, unfortunately, our historians don't usually bother to say, oh, this <laughs> this painting is about bread <laughs> or this uh, um, painting has bread in it. Uh, and of course, the bread that they paint is generally the bread that is uh, you know, popular in the society at the time. So uh, there's a number of German uh, paintings of the Last Supper from the uh, 1500s uh, onward that show Christ and the apostles eating pretzels because, by God, that's what the people were eating. And uh, if you're going to have a Last Supper, surely you wouldn't deny uh, yourself pretzels. Uh, so anyway, uh, one of the breads that is actually the oldest is brioche. Strangely enough, uh, there is a fantastic uh, painting called La Brioche from 1763, and boy, the, the brioche that it, it shows is just like a brioche today. Jesus ate pretzels at the Last Supper? Well, that seems more like a snack than dinner, but the real argument here is, who gets to call a bread a bread? Well, you know, part of it was that we will never have a standard for anything if a standard doesn't become widespread and practiced. And if, you know, it's almost like the culture of the baker traditionally has been one of secrecy. Because, especially in the age of the Industrial Revolution, you have to remember that the, the onslaught, the tsunami, the, uh, the destruction of the, of the kind of like these traditional bakeries, in, in part was facilitated by, you know, it's the economy of the cheap. And, I mean, the reason why, for example, traditional baking uh, would survive in a country such as Italy, in part, is has a lot to do with its social and cultural history and relationship to uh, where alim alimentation, food, and in particular bread, and, and then in Europe in general, also in France, with and that, that the government would go so far as to subsidize, for example, bakeries and millers so that, that bread could always remain affordable for the general public. I mean, it's mandated. Uh, of course, I think since the EU, those policies um, have changed. I would imagine also that in terms of the loss of uh, the erosion of nomenclature on bread, types of bread, forms of bread, and all that, is probably widespread throughout Europe 
you know, as 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 you know, mo- modern culture proceeds, you know, especially in the age of inf- and it's kind of funny in the age of information, and and maybe there's a like a like you know, a leg- legitimate reason why certain breads just die. Thankfully, through art, we have illustrative references, more of the home baker than bakery, but still, we're aware of what bread was out there. Well, that's right. Well, we've got dead people, and they could be, you know, have forensic, um, you know, forensic anthropology done on them. But, but the fact is that we don't know. And, and a photograph of a bread, that's not the bread. That's just the outside. So you have some very nice paintings from the Flemish period that have beautiful interiors. You'd actually, I think, get a lot more information about breads from... 1580 or 1620 in the in the Dutch Flemish tradition and Spanish tradition from that period than than you can from 1850 or 1920. So, I believe that there has been no change with bread over time. Factory breads are a different story, but the kind of bread you can make at home with flour and water and yeast or levain, there's no reason why the bread you make today is any different from a bread that could have been made in 2000 B.C. We'll let you chew on that, and we'll be right back with more Modernist Breadcrumbs. Bob's Red Mill is proud to bring you Modernist Breadcrumbs. Love learning about food? Get delicious recipes, valuable coupons, and more discussions of our very favorite ingredients at bobsredmill.com podcast. Who remembers when carbs became such a pariah in the 1990s? Fortunately, the times are changing. Now the goal is to eat a perfectly balanced diet that consists of lots of fruits and vegetables, many of which we consider superfoods, along with healthy servings of complex carbohydrates. Well, you know, superfoods are, of course, great, and I will say the more you eat, the better. However, eating only superfoods would make you deprived of essential nutrients from nourishing food groups like whole grains. That's Anna Benangle, a registered dietitian with eatwithzest.com. This is wonderful to hear from her because it means eating whole grain cereals, breads, or even muffins is a great way to get the carbs your body needs. You know, to be honest, I'm a huge Bob Redmill fan. I love a lot of the, the whole grains that they provide, but I particularly love they've come out with a blueberry hazelnut oatmeal cup. That is totally delicious. It's got classic superfoods like blueberries, but also some of the more trendy ones like flax and chia seeds. I'm also a big Bob's Red Mill fan, and I love that we can have our carbs and eat them too. Thanks so much, Diana, for helping us debunk the carb versus superfood debate. To learn more about Bob's Red Mill and their extensive line of whole grain flours, as well as grab some delicious recipes and great coupon offers, head to bobsredmill.com slash podcast. Bob's Red Mill, believers in whole grain foods for every meal of the day. This preservation of fermentation is what we're here to perpetuate. Breaking bread at the dinner table is a way of sharing heritage, passing along facts and fable that good bread has long existed but needs our help to continue. Imagine a world without bread, a gluten-free globe. No thanks. Bread, through the 1970s, had been relentlessly focused on as something that needed to be really cheap. And strangely to us today, high quality, high quality meaning perfectly uniform, so uh, Wonder Bread or the other sort of classic supermarket loaf that you might – that your mom might have made bologna sandwiches for you with in, uh, some time ago. So that was what – that industrial bread was the focus of almost everybody actually. Um, it was cheap. It was uh, actually touted as being high quality where high quality meant nice and uniform and – of course, flavorless as a result, but 
But that's, that was what the zeitgeist was. And then in the 70s, this prompted a back reaction. People said, wait a minute. Wait a minute. This is not great bread. And that reaction occurred pretty much simultaneously in France, where a guy named Ramon Clavel said, hey, this is terrible. We're losing our French heritage. We used to have this fabulous bread. Now we have this machine-made crap. Let's do something about it. Um, and uh, also then by a bunch of hippies in Northern California. <laughs> and they both formed uh, the, the two different prongs of what is called the artisanal bread movement. And so these folks said, hey, we want to go back to good quality bread. We want to have bread that has crusty crusts, not the soft, uh, spongy crusts of Wonder Bread. Well, we, have, we better look to the past. The past was that golden era. And this wound up creating lots of bakeries, and that artisanal bread movement that had its origin in the 70s has come all the way to this present day. But what about the edge? And we don't mean the crust. We're talking about the nexus of civilization, where two cultures collide, internationalizing a regional speciality, sometimes improving on it. So it's more about like I uh, understand we have a lot. If we talk, if I talk about France, we have a lot of borders: Spanish, Italy, Switzerland, Germany, uh, Belgium, and every border and middle of France have different cultures of bread. If you go to Nice you're going to have a lot of bread that's similar to Italian culture. If you go more in the southwest where I'm from, and, and the Pyrenees as well, uh, that is like an hour and a half from my, from my parents' house, is like more we have more this kind of mountain countryside uh, style uh, mixed with uh, Spanish culture. Same with uh, Strasbourg. You go to Strasbourg, all the bread, the, the most famous bread in uh, Strasbourg is, uh, is a rye bread that is similar to the cultures they have from Germany. So, I mean, we learn... Most of the, the, the French culture and the bread we have uh, in France, actually, in every part of France, we learn also uh, about the bread that we have uh, uh, outside France. For example, when I was, uh, uh, after my, my, uh, my first job at bread, uh, bread baking, I decided to go to school to get graduate. And we learn everything. We learn how to make bagel. We learn how to make a, a brioche. It's a ton of brioche exists. We, we did bombolonia. It's from Italy. We did focaccia. We did pizza dough. So we didn't stop the education just on, on French baking. But I think we understand now that French baking is not true anymore. It's more international baking. It's like more you have to understand how bread works outside your own culture. As much as we'd like to analyze authenticity, it's imperative to keep amorphous bread cultures alive. If you don't know Chad Robertson, he's synonymous with the revitalization of artisan bread baking in this country. Tartine, his preeminent bakery in the Mission District of San Francisco, may be place-specific, but his sourdough is all-encompassing. Well, it's a combination um the baker's touch is, I think, kind of goes for anywhere in the world, for sure. The terroir for bread, I think, is really, you're talking about what grain you're using. If it's grown from that region, um, it's going to have, you know, the characteristics of that region. Um, I've made sourdough from scratch in all over the world, and it always ends up the same. So in Mexico, my sourdough was exactly the same as in San Francisco. The biggest difference, I think, I mean, one thing I, I haven't heard many people talk about, but I think San Francisco sourdough exists and is famous. Well, historically, there were lots of Basque bakers that came there, you know, around the turn of the century, like the Gold Rush and all that. So there were a ton of French bakers in San Francisco, way more than there are now um, in the late 1800s. But um, that said, the reason bread works in San Francisco is because we have the perfect weather for sourdough. That is why we have a bread culture. In New York, it's too cold in the winter. It's too hot in the summer. In San Francisco, it's like basically sourdough weather year-round. And that's a huge part of why we have a bread culture there. Sourdough is a known entity. That flavor is unmistakable. And other breads don't have such an absolute. 
Some breads we think we know and love are false idols, like ciabatta, made of pure imagination. So uh, throughout history, there was these multiple types of bread. But we all have a collective amnesia as to what those breads of the past really were like. That's one of the funniest things about this artisanal bread movement is that the implicit idea was that there was a golden age of bread in the past, and if only we could recapture it. Wouldn't that be fabulous? But it's not factually correct. And the funniest example of that is if I ask people to guess when the first ciabatta bread was baked. And most Americans will say, well, that's um, that's some traditional uh, Italian peasant bread of the countryside. Because, man, it looks like that. Only it isn't. The first ciabatta bread was baked in the 1980s. And we know this because the baker who baked it applied for a trademark on it. And in fact, he had a funny goal. Uh, he was upset that France had a national bread, which was the baguette. And if there's any one bread that symbolized France, it would be the baguette. Italy didn't have a national bread because, in fact, Italy doesn't have much in the way of national cuisine. Italy has very strong regional cuisines. So in Sicily, you get Sicilian breads. <laughs> and in Milan, you get northern Italian breads. And in Tuscany, you get beautiful-looking breads that they left the salt out of, which is another whole crazy story. There was no national bread, so it says, ah, I will create a new synthetic, never-before-baked bread to try to establish as the national bread of Italy, which actually hasn't worked in Italy, but it has worked in the United States. Jim Leahy doesn't discredit the legend, but rather revels in it, because good bread can sometimes be just that, good bread. I, I believe that the ciabatta was a, a, a modern bread, probably created in the 70s. I think that the story is the 70s, 72. In Como, I've never visited you know, bakery number one. I do remember seeing amazing ciabatta and eating amazing ciabatta uh, like 20 years ago in, in Como, in the Como area. Lugano, Como. But I, I you know, it is a, I think, you know, it's a bread made with, you know, the most, I mean, you can make a ciabatta is just a form at the end of the day. And there have been bread that has been called ciabatta or zoccole probably as long as, again, going back to the nomenclature of bread, but the ciabatta that people think of and the one that I remember learning how to make was, you know, intensively kneaded with, you know, if possible, uh, you know, the highest quality and quantity of protein in the flour possible. And if you can do, go one-to-one -one flour to water on a white, with, with, you know, just white flour, great. If the flour would allow you to do that, fantastic. I remember the best ciabatta I ever ate were made by allowing the dough to proof in a bucket, in a long, tall, a uh, very tall bucket. And then when the dough was ready, the baker would reach in and just grab a clump and put, it, put the clump on a heavily floured board, and that was a... Jim Leahy is autonomous, self-determining, sovereign and free to make whatever kind of bread he wants. But he still sticks to his familiar classics. They come from conversation, contemplation, and most of all, an interest in keeping family recipes alive. Well, the Pugliese, you know, it's kind of like a story. I call it a story bread because, you know, I never saw it made. I just would have conversations with all these bakers that were from Puglia, in, in Lazio, mostly, and also in Milan. And they would talk about the bread from, like, you know, because baking and being a baker career in Italy was generational. So if you were born a baker, or your dad was a baker in Puglia 40, uh, 40 years ago, 60 years ago, it's highly probable that you will be a baker too, because that's just the way that, like that's their, their social and caste system. Um, if you are the owner of a bakery, you pass your bakery down to your children. 
and then there's that, that culture, traditional culture in, you know, called tribal culture, whatever, in Italy, where everything, everything stays within the, the clan or the family. La familia. Gabito. So in this culture, and also with industrialization, and also just people migrate, you, have all, you had all these, I, met, I kept meeting all these bakers from Puglia at that time, or from Sardinia, that, who were like, you know, in northern Italy are, are kind of like viewed as the, the lower classes, in a sense. Although, you know, despite the fact that you're baking bread, it's not, there's a lot of dignity and, and, and respect for the work of the baker, you, especially when the make, baker makes amazing bread. And they love the baker. And the baker, because that's how the baker shows their customer that they love them by making it, I hate this, to, to say that, but by making it great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Bake bread great again. You know? <laughs> I said it. I said it. No! It happens in pizza as well, imported from Italy, made American, and then regional. It's divisive. Ask a New Yorker what they think about Chicago-style pizza. It's all derivative and delicious. Yeah, well, pizza in America uh, really started uh, with Lombardi's um, over 100 years ago. That was one the first pizzeria in the United States. What really made pizza popular uh, was when our troops were stationed in Italy um, during the war. They had something called pizza, and when they came back to America... Um, you know, they were kind of asking for it. So uh, as pizza grew in America, it started in New York and it ventured off across all the way to the West Coast. And as it ventured off to the West Coast, uh, it kind of had its own styles. When you think of Chicago or Detroit or St. Louis, um, even New Haven to California, uh, a lot like Italy, you know, uh, you know, it started in Naples and Italy. And as it progressed south and north, um, it changed a little bit and uh, paid a little uh, homage to uh, the locals. And um, pizza in America is, is a little bit how pizza is in Italy, actually. It's, it's different everywhere. You know, when you think of pizza, um, let's just talk New York pizza. There's there's New York pizza, uh, you know, which borough are you talking about and where should I start? You know, if you started with, you know, your standard coal-fired pizzas uh, from New York, like Lombardi's, Titono's, Grimaldi's, that's a, a different type of pizza, typically made with a dry mozzarella and that's sliced on the bottom. And it's, it's like that upside-down pizza with with that sauce on top. It's cooked in a very high heat oven, uh, up to a thousand degrees. It's charred, but not chewy and wet like Neapolitan. It's charred. It has some sustainability. It's pliable and it's, you know, super, super delicious. Uh, when you think of that New York slice, that's usually cooked in a gas brick oven at 500 to 575 degrees, maybe 600 degrees, longer bake, uh, different type of mozzarella, usually a whole milk, and a blend of uh, part skim milk. And you're looking for, you know, that traditional, I fold that slice, it cracks, but it doesn't break. Um, that oil's kind of going down your uh, your side of your elbow. You're eating it on the street. You're walking down the street with it. Um, and then you think of like burros, you think of like grandma-style pizzas out of Long Island or Sicilian-style pizzas. Both are cooked in a pan. The Sicilian is uh, a, a bit thicker than a grandma. Grandma's thinner. Uh, much thinner square slice that's uh, almost fried in oil. As you go across West, you visit, you know, Chicago, you're thinking of that pizza that's almost like that lasagna. You know, it's layers of cheese, layers of ingredients. It's about two inches in height, and it's cooked um, in a pan as well, in a gas brick oven, typically at about 475 or 500 for about 20 to 30 minutes. So you have that really thick pizza that could also be stuffed as well. Um, and then there's, you know, when you think of Chicago too, there's a cracker thin side of Chicago and Chicagoans are like pissed because you're all, you know, you're a deep dish guy. Uh, you know, no, no, not at all. I'm a cracker thin guy. So as it moves West, um, you know, you see Chicago it changing a bit, uh, really all about sausage in Chicago. Uh, most 
used ingredient uh, when it comes to pizzas. Uh, Chicagoans use more sausage than anybody in our industry. Um, and then you start looking at Detroit. Uh, Detroit-style pizzas is very unique. It's cooked in a blue steel pan. Uh, it gets very, very hot. It's made with brick cheese. It's made with, uh, could be blended with cheddar. Uh, you have two racing straps of sauce over the top. Um, yeah, the variations of, of pizzas change quite a bit. Even New Haven, Connecticut, when you think of a clam and garlic style pizza, it's also cooked in a coal oven at uh, near a thousand degrees, uh, typically super hydrated dough, um, stretched out. It's not the perfectly round, but at the same time, it's, it's perfectly awesome. More than anything, it's about respecting the craft, then marrying it with your own artistic impression. There's a point when the honeymoon phase is over and you think you're in love with what you have at hand until you realize there's more to know. You know, I was a pizza guy for a little over 10 years at the time. Uh, I was on my honeymoon in Naples and, and I was with my wife and here I was this pizza guy that, you know, I thought I knew everything. It, it was kind of a young young way of thinking, especially when it comes to cooking. You're always trying to do something that's out of the box, uh, but being able to recreate something that was done over 120, 130 years ago and, and, and understanding how to cook it is that more exciting. So, yeah, I was on my career. In my career, I was on my honeymoon. I said, hey, let's stop off in Naples. I got to try uh, Don Michele, Trianon. I got to go to all the greats. Um, we went to Spacanopoli on our way to Sorrento, stopped off at Trianon, had a pizza. I looked at it, and, and I'm looking at it, and this is the year 2000. And I'm saying to myself, I don't know how to make this. I don't know how to make this, you know, and I'm saying to myself, I know nothing. And my wife's looking at me like, you're, you know, you're freaking nuts. What are you talking about? We're on our honeymoon. I'm like, no, no, I, I don't know how to make this. We're always trying to improve and better ourselves through baking. If bread is life and vice versa, then the ingredients and sources we choose are the most important choices we make. Therefore, the more you know. They have sought out better and better foods. When I was a kid, of course, I wasn't much of a coffee drinker, but man, it was either U-Ban or Folgers. That was the whole, that plus maybe some store brand. It was all coffee that you bought in a can at the grocery store. Well, now, of course, I'm here in Seattle that has a zillion single origin special, only harvested from the left side of the hill, but on, but on, but on, but on. Starbucks has turned that into a giant business, but so have tons of other coffee entrepreneurs. Uh, wine. You know, you can buy box wine <laughs> that's made of sort of generic grape but in fact, if you want to buy better wine, they pretty soon they tell you what variety of grape it is. Then pretty soon they tell you who grew the grapes. And then pretty soon it's, hey, the same people are growing the grapes and making the wine. Same deal with chocolate. Um, when I was a kid, chocolate was Hershey's. Well, again, people got into it and they said, well, wait a minute. Is this as good as it can get? And the answer is no, of course not. If you care about the product and you manage to source the very best, well, A, it'll cost more. And B, the people who grow in uh, the very best have to get directly connected to the consumer by somebody else that is that uh, intermediary. Well, there could be nothing further from that than the grain market. In the grain market, there's, I think, four grain crops, which is basically soft wheat and hard wheat, winter and spring wheat, that's it. There's four kinds. That's like 90% of the entire grain harvest. If you're a farmer, it's extremely difficult to do anything except grow the lowest common denominator grain. And that's because we haven't had this process like we had in all these other foods of people seeking out the better thing. Now, by the way, it's only better in those other cases because it's a slightly different variety or it's grown in a special way. There's a whole set of things that make it better. Usually, it's different variety is key to that. You know, it's only the grapes from uh, Domaine de la Romani Conti, which are that clonal variety that's been gr- grown on those particular couple of acres in this magic part of France. Um, or the single origin chocolate from the farm in the highlands of Grenada. Uh, Well, 
We don't have that with grain, and we certainly should, because guess what? When you buy a loaf of artisanal bread, eh, the farmer's getting five cents. The loaf costs more than the supermarket bread, but most artisanal bread is made with the same damn flour. We're feeding people in two ways here, nourishing the body and nourishing the mind. Glenn Roberts, a leader in the greater grains movement in the U.S., is trying to recover what we've lost, recycle it back into our system in the hope that this time, this time, it's here for good. And we were going with Glenwood, and then the New World Foundation came in with 1,200 acres. I'd never seen a grain hub develop from zero to 1,200 acres in less than 36 months. And I'm going, wow, well, this is different. And that whole thing happened. Uh, Mark Sorrells was a geneticist. Uh, David Bencher was the grad guy. And they went from zero ancient wheat in sustainable tilth to 230 straight-up varieties of stuff that had been grown in the Hudson over the last 400 years in one year. I provided the grant for it. I said, okay, this feeds the community. And then everybody said, no, no, that's just elite crap. You know, nobody's eating einkorn bread. I, I keep saying, why not? It grows like a weed. Why can't, why can't you have rice bread on the Hudson? Oh, nobody ever grew rice on the Hudson. Yes, they did. They grew rice on the Hudson. And they grew wild rice on the Hudson. So there's lots of different breads you can have to feed a community. There's lots of things that coming out of a grain hub that feeds the community. So I chose to work indirectly through grain hubs, and we've done 15. And what do these grain hubs do? They give food away. They provide food at fair market. And it's bread, mostly. And it's bread culture, mostly. But even more... It's leading towards biodense culture, which means it's bred with nutrition. You know, in old crops, flavor equals nutrition. Past the Industrial Revolution, that's not so true. When you get to the Green Revolution, it really blows up in your face. Now we're in the recovery cycle where people are starting to talk about this a whole lot. So, feeding local people, I found out even that wasn't enough. So, next we took on a global initiative. This sounds cheesy too, I'm sorry. But we took on a global initiative to save the true rice of the staple breads of the South. Again, we're back at the human condition. That saving seed is atonement for humanity. Every time you extend your arm towards a prepackaged, highly processed white bread, you're making a decision. Why not vote for diversity? It is the flavor of life. You know, it's funny. It's a ritualized set of steps and procedures. But really, at the end of the day, you mix flour and water together in a certain manner, in a certain way, to a certain viscosity, to a certain whatever you're... You know, really, at the end of the day, it's all about your, your, your output. Because if your output is consistent, then you have a customer. If your output is inconsistent, you create... Uh, kind of like a, f- like a, like a, like a bad experience for someone. So it's really difficult what what we do, you know, because every day we're having to, you know, I mean, I, I, we could industrialize the bakery and automate it, but you, you lose a lot of quality uh, when you make those decisions just by, by extension of the fact that it's you you want that the human element is what's adding value to the experience. Not that, you know, I can brand something and slap a label on it. No, Sullivan Street. Sullivan Street Bakery is a place you can go and revisit, cherish with friends, and forget how lucky you were to have good bread at hand. Polan, too, is an institution. Hers is a family of bakers, one that spans generations. Apollonia knows that the satisfaction of her customers is really why she bakes and she feeds off their patronage. One of the most amazing experiences working in, in the bakery, whether it's um, with our local customers in our bakeries or whether it's in retail, is having been in charge of the business for over a decade now, I'm starting to see new generations of clients. Sometimes we would serve um, someone and now we're serving their partners, um, their children. And, and that's, to me, the biggest compliments ever Um, and I remember one morning 
coming up from, uh, it was Saturday morning and I was working at the bakery and I was bringing up the bakery, uh, well, the batch of bread that had just come out of the oven. And as I'm opening the, um, the elevator to pull out the, the, uh, the trolley of, of breads, I noticed this little kid who's like waist, my waist height. And I was like, what are you doing here? And turns out little Shal is the neighbor, the neighbor from across the street. And that's his thing. He comes in the back um, of the bakery uh, when, he comes, when his mom's in the shop. And he comes and picks his, his biscuits. Um, so I took him that morning to the, to the bakehouse so that he could visit the bakehouse as well. With quality bread so close to home, we forget that we once needed to feed the body and then the soul. And of course, you have to remember that today our big obsession is eating what we want without getting fat. And sadly, I have not mastered that. The obsession throughout most of history was how the hell do I eat enough so I don't starve? Even if I'm a quite wealthy person, because there were plenty of periods where there would be drought or uh, a war or a blockade or all kinds of things that would mean everybody had real privation. Cooking for pleasure, cooking and making the very best things has always been there because we humans like stuff that tastes good. Um, uh, evolution built us to have a sense of taste and come after that. But for most people throughout most of history, the fact was finding calories was way more important than uh, how it tasted. Here, we end with our penchant for preference. Personal tastes that come with the freedom of choice. But what if we didn't have those? Bread was the first regulated food, with bakeries centralized in cities and held hostage by hierarchy. There have been laws and wars stemming from a systematic withholding of grain. Why politicize a loaf of bread? The shape, the size, the cost? Debased by additives, additions of straw, sawdust, and chalk. Almost anything you can imagine has been used to adulterate bread at some point in time. Well, not on our watch. Consider us the bread fed, and we're hungry for justice. Watch out. This has been episode four of Modernist Breadcrumbs, Milling About, History Part 2, Pre-Industrialization. In the next episode, Against the Grain, we'll be talking about politics and the laws of bread baking. Our theme music is by Thomas Hughes and Gretchen Lowe's. Hear more on Instagram at Carol Cleveland Sings. So as we've heard, industrialization put a whole generation of bakers on a roll. 